Welcome to Show and Tell with Christopher Biggins. This is the podcast where I invite one of my friends to show off three things that tell a story from their lives. My house is full of memorabilia and keepsakes that are the perfect reminder of times gone by. I've got pictures, paintings, walking sticks. I love my belongings and the stories that are attached to them. That's why in this podcast, I'll be asking my guests to share the stories of some of the things that take pride of place in their homes. Big or small, new or old, their selections are completely up to them. And I'm sure that whatever they bring along will strike up some unforgettable conversations. So, without any further delay, it's time to welcome our show and teller, Gloria Honeyford. So, Gloria Honeyford has been on our screens for over 40 years. Good Evening Ulster, Open House, Rip Off Britain and Loose Women are just a few of the programmes that Gloria has hosted. For 15 years, Gloria presented a daily show on BBC Radio 2. She also set up a charity for her daughter, Karen Keating, who sadly died of breast cancer in 2004. Gloria, my darling, how are you today? Christopher Biggins, I love you madly and I'm fabulous (laughs) because I'm talking to you. Oh, you are good. You're looking wonderful, I must say. I dressed up especially for you. You I look like rubbish on television, but I look great on sound. (laughs) (laughs) How many years have we known each other? Do you know? I think it's probably about 102 by now, basically. (laughs) Um, I, I feel as if I've known you all my life, but I think a lot of people say that about you because... You are a bit of a tart and you're everywhere. And so we all feel as if we know you anyway. <laughs> uh, no, I know certainly since I came over from Northern Ireland uh, in 1982, we've known each other very well in that sense, in as much that um, not only have I interviewed you a lot over the years, but you also have helped me enormously at various functions for my daughter Karen, etc. So uh, I think it's a lovely friendship. We may not see each other every other day, or have dinner every other month, because you always promise, but you never do it. And uh, But <laughs> I feel as if I can call you at any time. I feel as if you're a really good friend, and I love you dearly. And my earliest memory of you, I think, Gloria, was doing Open House, which I, I did when you came over. Was that the first thing you did when you came over from Ireland? No, not at all. No, 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 no. I um, was working in BBC Northern Ireland, where I was given a job, by the way, given a job, because I was a singer originally. I was a singer from seven. You may not know that, but I was. And that's what I was always going to be. I've got all your records. I hope you have. Got them in the second-hand shop, did you? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I was given a job at BBC in Northern Ireland, which was all, uh, you know, it was politics and it was all bombs, bullets and barricades because it was 1967 when everything broke out in Northern Ireland. And then I moved to Ulster Television to do a nightly news programme between six and seven in the evening. And it was there that, again, how lucky have I been? I was offered a job to come across to London to stand in for Jimmy Young on Radio 2. And so I came over for two weeks to do that, loved it. And at the end of the week, I was called up to see the boss. And I thought, well, maybe, maybe, maybe he'd have me back some other time to stand in. But in fact, he offered me a job. So my first job uh, in London was Radio 2. And I uh, gathered that I was the first woman actually on Radio 2 because they didn't have, at that particular point in broadcasting, there weren't many women, either, certainly in Northern Ireland, in front of the camera or behind. Um, And on Radio 2, it was ridiculous that in 1982, 
They didn't have one woman doing what we call strip programs, which is not strip in the traditional sense, but stripped across the day, two hours at a time. It was all men. And in fact, it took me back to three years prior to that. And I went over uh, to London. When you come from a province, you're very brave because you don't care. You know, you ring people up. I just rang up the controller of BBC Two, as you do, just <laughs> rang as them you up do. and said, can I drop in? I'm going to be in London. And I had six albums under my arm because that's what I wanted. I really wanted to plug on Radio Two. So he said to me in the course of a cup of tea, etc. He said, do you listen to Radio 2? I said, of course I do. And I did, actually. That was my station. And he said, what do you think is wrong with it? Well, I hadn't really expected that because I thought he's going to play my record of Radio 2 one of these days. <laughs> but I said to him, well, for one thing, I said, you've got no women on it. And what makes you think that men don't want to listen to women as they drive their combine harvester or drive around the country? <laughs> and what, what makes you think that women don't want to listen to a woman when they're making the beds or picking the kids off from school or whatever? So three years later, that man came to get me and gave me the job. How about that for luck? And suddenly there was Gloria Hannaford in London. On Radio 2. I did actually Radio 2 daily for uh, 13 years, which was a wonderful experience because... We had all sorts of fantastic guests, you know, whom I would have watched uh, on the silver screen back in Northern Ireland, never dreaming that one day I'd get to interview them. So it was, uh, I do feel I had a lot of luck. At the same time, I often say to young people, if you do get a bit of luck, you've got to work at it in order to keep it. So here I am in my 81st year, still working and, and commissioned until 2023. So that's not bad. It's fantastic. Did you bring the whole, you must have brought the whole family over to London? Well, yes, Karen and Paul uh, were at college and university in England anyway. And Michael, my youngest, was about 10. Um, and Don, my then husband, um, he was a television director, producer. And ironically, we'd never, ever been apart more than about 12 days, you know. And he was, it's almost like somebody moved the pieces because he was sent to South Africa to do a programme and I was uh, offered the job in London. So if it had been the previous year, couldn't have done it. So that's why I say somebody moved the pieces because Karen would have been doing A-levels and Paul would have been doing O-levels, so I couldn't have gone. Um, but it was just strange that we went separate ways. He went to South Africa. I came to London. And of course, part of the attraction was that the kids could come home at the weekend with their dirty washing. <laughs> and they did. And they did. But <laughs> Irish mothers are very, very, very close to family, uh, which I am. And that was a big attraction for me, apart from the excitement of broadcasting on a, on a national network. Fantastic. Well, now we're going to get to your first item. Because uh, as you know, in this podcast, I've asked you to prepare three things. Do you have your number one object ready? Well, I do. You're going to have to look at this book because as you will see here, you will see, this is when I went to Canada. So here I am, the, I'm the top one in this grid of women. And we're the cheerleaders for a, a, a marvellous um, university in Kingston, Ontario. Now, I'm right at the top on this myriad uh, I couldn't even get up to the knees these days, never mind to the top. Uh, but it, looking back now, it was a very brave thing I did really in the 50s because I was only 17 and I was absolutely fascinated by Canada because a great uncle of mine had arrived after 40 years of being, I didn't even know who he was. He'd been in Canada 40 years, turned up at the doorstep one day and he brought with him all these wonderful stories of 
like it was after much after the war, of course, but uh, rationing was still in place until about 1956, if I remember. And so rationing had gone. He came bearing marshmallows and angel cake and big red shiny apples. And I thought this Canada place must be fantastic. So I was determined I was going to go. So when I was 17, and you always did then what your parents told you, you had to have really their permission. And so I was desperate to go to Canada. So I went by myself. Although I had this great uncle in Canada to vouch for me, as it were. Um, but I emigrated. I technically emigrated on a 10-pound passage. You're probably too young to remember that. But anyway. I do remember. No, I do remember them. But that, that's very brave of you. It was looking back. But at the time, it just seemed exciting and what I wanted to do and what I was going to do. And I only had 35 Canadian dollars in my pocket. Um, albeit I had my uncle there, so I was never going to be stuck. But I'd only been there a couple of weeks, and uh, it was. Uh, I should preface it by saying I had never been out of Ireland, ever. And when my uncle, great-uncle picked me up in Montreal, he had a map with him, and he said to me, now, how big do you think Ireland is compared to Canada? And I went, well, I don't really know the answer to that, but I said, but I know that Ireland's big. Oh, my goodness, it would take you maybe three days to drive from one end to the other. And he looked at it and he said, you could put the whole of Ireland into Lake Superior with room left over. And that was the first time <laughs> I had any idea of how big a country I was going to. But it was the best thing I could have done because after about two or three weeks, my great uncle said to me, um, you know, we live out of Kingston, Ontario. And there aren't many young people out here. He said, we think that you should stay in the YWCA. And I thought, of course, they're throwing me out. But anyway, the YWCA was marvellous. It was full of girls my age. We met all the boys from the local university in Kingston. And I got a job in Kingston. And so it was perfect for my age group. And it also changed my whole life in a way. Because in Northern Ireland, I was um, not submitted to it, but it just was the case. It was fact. Uh, the Catholic schools were at one end of the town, the Protestant at the other. And I was in Northern Ireland. I'm a Northern Ireland Protestant, as it were. And same with the churches. The churches were one end, Protestant the other. But when I went to Canada, nobody asked me my religion, which I find very odd, because in Northern Ireland, everybody asked your religion. Even if you applied for a job, your name went first, and then it said religion. So I was conditioned to that. But then I learned that in Canada and in the world, really, you can have all sorts of religions, all sorts of colour, all sorts of nationality. And that broadened my horizon for the rest of my life. It was the best thing I could ever have done. So that was a fantastic learning curve. And I loved it. And also, I got my first chance of broadcasting there because back in Northern Ireland, there was only the BBC, Pucker English and all of that. And in Kingston, there were about 10 television stations, 15 radio stations. And eventually I got my own little program singing Irish songs on the radio for 15 minutes oh. every, every night. Well, I didn't know that many Irish songs, but I learned fast. <laughs> <laughs> so you, did you bring out an album, your Irish songs I know? I did much later on, but I tried to bury it all the time. It keeps sort of showing up. It cost me £100 to make. <laughs> and uh, there were all songs like Come In and Close the Half Door, all that sort of stuff. And uh, no matter how... How does that go? I can't... I, no, I, I can't remember that, but another one was um, Three weeks ago last Sunday I left me home in Cork. It was all done in sort of, you know, <laughs> pseudo-Irish. 
Well, I mean, a rubbish record, but, you know, hey, it was good publicity at the time. And how long did you stay there? I stayed a year because, um, as I mentioned, in those days, you did what your parents were doing. It was a different era, a different time. And I, pr- I promised my parents that I would come back for Christmas. And so that's what I did. But I really did not intend to stay because when I went, I mentioned I had only a few Canadian dollars in my pocket. But when I came back, I left... Th- uh, three thirds really, um, well, three quarters, should I say, of my clothes in Canada because I was coming back. And I also brought back enough money for my return fare. I mean, I was like proportionately well off. We lived in a two up, two down in Portadown and there wasn't much spare money. But I always earned money myself from the age of seven by singing. Even if it was only seven and six months then, it was money. And uh, but but, you know, life changed and I didn't obviously go back to Canada, but I loved it as a country. And I like it better than America, and I adored the people. Do you still go back? Uh, Stephen, my husband, and I, we've been back a couple of times on holidays, and we did look up some of the former friends. There was a, um, a Yugoslav guy uh, there. We looked him up, and actually we stayed with him, and he was a lawyer. And it wasn't a romantic relation, but relationship, but he took me home to have proper food and all of that sort of thing, and we kept in touch. So we stayed with him and his wife and children, you know, in Toronto for a few days. So it was it was lovely. And he came over for my This Is Your Life. Aww. And the last I heard of him was he was he was down Soho somewhere with um, Jerry Kelly from Northern Ireland. So there we go. <laughs> was your This Is Your Life with Eamon? Or... Was with Eamon, yes. yes. And it, it was quite a story there because I was, I mentioned working for Radio 2, and I'd only been there a relatively short time. And the previous week, I'd interviewed a guy called Stan from Coronation Street or something, and uh, from a soap anyway. And he had been uh, caught by Eamon the previous week. And so I was asking him questions like, what was it like and where were you when he presented with a book and who came and everything. And what I couldn't understand was, as I was talking to him, in from both sides of the studio came Eamon with the red book. And I was thinking, <laughs> well, this guy has done it. And why why is he in here? But it turned out that it was for me. And it was just such a shock because I didn't think I'd been in London long enough to be done on This Is Your Life. But, of course, it was always a great thrill and I still have the red book. Yeah, so do I. I, I was later. I was Michael Aspel. Oh, were you? Yes. It's always such a thrill, you know, when I remember, I remember in particular that I left the house that morning uh, Karen, my daughter, had been staying overnight. And I said, do you want to lift in? Do you want to come? She said, no, 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 I'm going to go later on the train. <laughs> and so I drove in. But I later discovered that that Karen and Michael, my youngest, that they were hiding in the pub near where I was living in Seven Oaks, And they had been up to London to have dinner. This was the previous night, of course. Up to London to have dinner. And with all the friends from Northern Ireland and back in the house again before I even got home. So all the stuff goes on behind your back. There's so much deceit in that programme. And then you think, I'll never believe a word you say ever again. <laughs> I don't know why they don't do it anymore, actually, because the research was fabulous. I don't know. It's, it's a fantastic show. Right, now we're getting on to your second item. What's your second item, Gloria? Well, my second item, I suppose, has to be broadcasting. Um, I mean, I would like to preface all of this by saying that the most important things in my life are my family, my children, my husband. Obviously, these are life-changing things that we're talking about. But if I had to choose, I would choose family all the time. But broadcasting was huge to me, of course, because as I mentioned, 
I moved from a province of doing bombs, bullets and barricades over to London. And although I started with uh, Jimmy Young, um, I, he obviously had politics and everything sewn up. So when they gave me my own programme, it had to be really wonderful guests. And of course, that was fantastic because to have that programme and to interview people whom I had watched on the silver screen when I was growing up, I mean, it was utterly amazing. So I'm just looking for the photographs as we speak. So can you give me three clues about your, your second item, Gloria? Well, as I did mention earlier, I, of course, went into broadcasting in London and that opened up a whole new world. That was definitely um, a turning point. So I'll show you just this page. So as you can see, Betty Davis. Oh. So to be interviewing a legend was fantastic. Audrey Hepburn. My God. Uh, there, Charlton Heston. Oh. And if I went over and, and did Robert Mitchum, Sean Connery. So how many more do you want? I'll give you lots of clues. Oh, I turn over the page. I mean, it, it is amazing. Jimmy Stewart. So those memories come from a programme called Sunday Sunday. So as I did mention, uh, it was Radio 2 that brought me to London. But I'd only been in London a matter of weeks, really. I'd just got my feet onto the Radio 2 desk when I got a call from London Weekend Television, as it was then. It's just ITV now. And they offered me this chat show called Sunday Sunday. So bearing in mind that in Portadown in Northern Ireland, there was nothing to do but to go to the pictures, as we called it. Uh, we had three cinemas in our small market town and they changed their programme three times a week. So we saw a lot of movies. And so I didn't quite understand how they got all these big names, but did I care? <laughs> My goodness, I'd sort of died and gone to heaven, as it were, because every week they would tell me another major Hollywood star. And I would think to myself, if only I had known when I was sitting in that flea-ridden picture house in Portadown that one day I'd go to California and interview Doris Day, because then I wanted to be Doris Day. I could sing. I didn't have blonde hair then, but I thought I could make it as blonde as hers. And I just wanted to be her because I loved the clothes. Uh, as I got older, I loved the men. I loved her singing. And so it was me on Sunday, Sunday, living out my ultimate dream, really, because we did nine series. There were about uh, 16 programmes in each block. But it was a lot of, and it was always big, big names. But then on a local level, we maybe would have had the first interview with Don French and um, Jennifer Saunders because they were just breaking ground then as comedians in, in comedy. So it was a fabulous programme to do. And, and I look back, if I could relive my professional life again, I would definitely relive that period because I would just be that much wiser. Who was the biggest star you met? Who was the one that sent shivers down your back? Well, I mean, I mentioned Audrey Hepburn there. I mean, Breakfast at Tiffany's is still probably my favourite film. On a wet Sunday, I could watch that over and over again. Uh, and so I'd never seen her being interviewed um, out of London or certainly when I was living in Northern Ireland. So I was so thrilled to hear that she was coming and she was so beautiful, with that long sort of swan-like neck. And it turned out to be, sadly, one of the last interviews she did uh, before she died. Um, but I was so excited and so was everyone. And you, you know, Christopher, you know exactly the picture in the studio. The guys on the floor, they've seen it done, they got the T-shirt. But the day that Betty Davis, that enormous screen legend and still is to this day, you know, her films are repeated all the time. She was with us in the studio live. You could have heard the proverbial pin drop because they were aghast really that here she was. She was 
quite thin. Her little, I remember her little arms were so thin and she always wore a little hat. Um, but she, she had a good sense of humour as well because she said that she was doing a question and answer session once in a theatre and she said somebody in the audience shouted out in the question time, hey, Betty, have you ever had any face surgery or ever had anything like that? And she said, you in the audience, come up here. And she crooked her finger, come up, come up, come up. And eventually the person was at the stage and she said, have a good look, have a good look up close. Do you see any scars or anything like that? Do you see wrinkles in my face? Do you think I've had surgery? No, ma'am. <laughs> and then in the studio, she said at one point, oh, yeah. she was a good interviewee, by the way, very giving. Uh, she said, are you ever going to talk about the goddamn book? It's the only reason I'm here. <laughs> very, very funny. But I mean, as you can imagine, I mean, you know lots of famous people, but that to me was a kind of a reenactment of all those Kirk Douglas and Charlton Heston and all those people I'd watched on the screen when I was a kid. And suddenly they were there drinking a BBC you know, rubbish cup of coffee out of a polystyrene cup. And I was going to do the interview. You know, it was thrilling. And it's funny, professionalism takes over. A lot of people will say to me, weren't you scared or did you not dry up? And I went, no, I didn't because, you know, your professionalism kicks in. And I always do my homework. Always, because I would be nervous. The only time I'd ever be really nervous if I didn't have enough information or didn't do my homework. So I was well armed and I loved it and didn't really get phased in that sense. I, I, uh, she did a show at Croydon and of all places. And the first half was showing her films. And then at the end of the film section, the, the, uh, the screen went up. And there she was, this little figure standing there. And that was the end of Act One. And then Act Two, people asked her questions. It was just wonderful. Of Croydon, of all places. <laughs> Not too far away from where I'm sitting at the moment. No, no. But she is quite mes mesmerising because even young people who wouldn't remember in her, you know, halcyon period, if you like, but they are repeated so much on, on television that young people, you know, do say, oh, my goodness. You know, I just love that film because it's so much part of history and the acting was so brilliant. Um, but it's very, very thrilling. Um, and then, of course, the other one um, that I loved seeing was Leslie Caron because I called my daughter, Car spelt her name, C-A-R-O-N, because of Leslie Caron's spelling. Because my married name there was Keating. And I thought the KK might be just too harsh. And uh, you've done lots of royal varieties, as I have. And I went in one year... And as you know, everybody's packed into those dressing rooms at the Palladium, wherever it is. And I looked at the notice on the door and there was Leslie Caron on the notice that she was in the room. And I couldn't believe it that I was going to meet her and I could tell her about calling Karen, spelling it after her. And I walked in and she was sitting in her vest with no makeup on in front of the mirror. <laughs> and I thought, this is not how I wanted to see her for the first time. But, you know, there's a memory that comes with every single photograph that I have. And, uh, and I love those memories. I once uh, went to Paris on a, a, a trip and we went on the train. And uh, we were met by the people who we were going to stay with. And this little woman who was driving us, uh, we got into the car at the, at the railway station and she drove us off. And I thought, I know this, but I can't think I know, I know her. And uh, we were talking and she drove us to the hotel we were staying in. And, and then we had lunch. And during lunch, I suddenly said, you're, you're Leslie Caron. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't the most... <laughs> 
wonderful moment. I had no idea that she was going to pick us up. Or did I know that immediately who she was? It was very, very funny. On the back of that, uh, Chris, you've just reminded me of something. On that occasion at the Royal Variety, um, at the very, very end, you know there's always like a dinner for all the star names and yeah. everything afterwards. And by that stage, I felt as if I'd known her for years. So she said to me, do you have a car uh, taking you to this hotel for the dinner? I said, I do, actually. Uh, she said, do you think I could have a lift? <laughs> so it ended up that Michael, my youngest, who was with me that night, and and so she came in the car with us to the dinner, and I thought, if only I'd known that one day she would say to me, could you give me that? <laughs> I would have been really tough. I, and I, I'm going to tell another story now. Of course, I remember, Gloria, when you did The Royal Variety with Scylla Black. And you played the Andrew sisters. And you, my darling. You were the most beautiful Andrew sister of all. And me. And you were furious, you two girls, because I had better legs than both of you. And if I looked hard <laughs> enough, I could still find your Lyle stockings or your Lyle tights because I kept them. Well, you see, that was hilarious because um, I, again, had only been in, in London for a short time. And just to beat the Palladium was enough. Uh, but when Scylla's husband then Bobby rang up and said, look, we would love you to join Scylla and Biggins in this song, Booga 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 Boy from Company B. Can you sing that? Oh, yeah. Booga 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 Boy from Company B. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, well, I was thrilled. But, you know, the thing I remember about that most, I had never had notes given to me. You may have had because you're an actor. But afterwards, after we did the rehearsal at the Palladium in our live stockings and our... American <laughs> uniforms. Bobby, Bobby gave us notes. And I thought to myself, how marvellous is that? He was just saying, don't move quickly there or move closer there or, you know, raise your voices there. I thought that was, I thought, how lucky is Scylla to have this man by her side giving her notes all the time. <laughs> uh, so I have lovely memories of that. I'll give you the stockings back if you want. Oh, please. <laughs> <laughs> Gloria, I'm loving talking to you. But in a minute, we'll be back for Gloria's final selection after a short break. I'm also going to show you something of my own. So, welcome back to Show and Tell. And my special guest today is the gorgeous, wonderful, beautiful, fantastic <laughs> Gloria Hunniford. I love you, Gloria. It's wonderful talking did to you. Did I write that intro for you? Yeah, you did. You did. You did. Yeah, I got okay. it. You, I got it. You did it. it very well. Yeah. Yeah, you, you emailed it over to me. It was fantastic. Now, I'm going to come to my first item, uh, which is a rather poignant moment for me, because, and I'm sure for you, because um, I've done a lot of comparing for you for Karen's charities. For which I'm very grateful. Well, no, well, it's my pleasure. But recently, I was very thrilled that we did Strictly Come Dancing and we did these lovely lunches, followed by all the stars of Strictly Come Dancing dancing for us. And it was just wonderful. And as a thank you, you gave me Karen's painting, uh, self-portrait of herself, which is to my side there. You, you, uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful painting. But it was very special to me because Karen was very special to me, as you know. And in fact, when she went to Australia, I happened to be in Australia when she was there. And we went to Byron Bay, which she spent a long time there, didn't she? Three years. Yeah. And it was very, it was very emotional, the whole thing, because she was such a special girl. And she was amazing because she knew she wasn't well. And she'd gone to Byron Bay because there were so many health-giving uh, things around her to help her. And, of course, it never worked out. I mean, 
It was it was so sad because she was such a marvellous person. And of course, it must have been tragic for you, Gloria, because this was your, out of three children, your only daughter. Yes, and the, and the, the point is that, I mean, I, um, I feel for anybody who loses a loved one, but I honestly believe that to lose a child is the worst kind of grief because I have lost parents in the past, my sister, my first husband, etc. And to lose a child, you cannot carry a child for nine months and give birth to that child and love and adore that child for whatever number of weeks, months, years, in my case, 30 odd years before Karen got ill. Uh, And when she died, when she was 41, I can't even begin to describe the loss because it's totally the wrong way around. I would have been ill for her. I, I would easily have said in my mind, I've had a good life so far. Please let me be the one rather than Karen. Um, but of course, the things don't happen that way. And um, and I think that the pain and the loss was so bad that it could have taken me out as well because I went into the only thing I can describe as a black hole. And every time I tried to crawl up the black hole, something memory, photograph, talk, whatever, would knock me down again. And I felt I couldn't get out of this black hole. But one day I woke up and I thought to myself, if I don't try and join, you know, the the living again in that sense, or or what I would have deemed a bit of normality, this is going to take me out. And that's not going to do Karen's two boys, Charlie and Gabriel, any good, not going to do my now husband Stephen any good, my sons any good. And I had to do a head job on myself to say, you have got to get back into the realms of living. But I want to tell you about a letter that I received from a woman I've never met and may never meet. And she said to me, um, I don't know why I'm writing this, but it's 1.25 in the morning, but I'm compelled to write. And she, of course, said nice things about Karen and how sad she was. But she says, you now have to find a way forward to keep Karen's name alive and to do some good for other people. And she said, you have to remember that Karen had wonderful spirit and had a very big soul. And you must remember that death is never the end because that soul lives on and you have to find a way to uh, carry it forward because the soul is bigger than death. And in a flash, I realized that uh, because Karen and I had a name and broadcasting, etc., both of us, that we had the wherewithal that we could set up a foundation and we could do events as the one you described earlier, are strictly tea dancing. We could do hard rock, for example. They do one for us every year. And we could help uh, cancer charities all over the country. And that's why it was a great pleasure to give you that painting in question because that Karen was a great artist and she could have done art rather than English at university. Um, but that was the very last painting she completed before she died. And it became very special. And I only give it to special people. Or we sometimes... Oh, we auction them sometimes at our events to raise money. But this is the photograph of Karen. This was one of the things I was going to show you. I adore this photograph. Now, I'm going to sound as if I'm boasting about it, but she was the most beautiful girl. She was. And she was a very special girl because she didn't know how gorgeous she was. She wasn't wearing clothes down to her navel and clothes up to her backside. She wasn't that kind of girl at all. And yet 
men would tell me now that she's one of the sexiest girls they ever saw uh, because she had a modesty about her and yet she was just so beautiful. Also, she had a, a sense of humour that was an off-the-wall kind of humour. And she was the woman that I loved talking to most in the whole world because no matter what was in my mind or maybe I was worried about something, she'd say, ah, have you ever thought of looking at it like this? And so she would give me another viewpoint. And I'm glad to say that Charlie and Gabriel, her boys, who were only 10 and 7 when she died, uh, Charlie has inherited that humour, the spirit. I mean, my granny used to say, the spirit carries on, you know. And she's right, because her two boys have totally Karen's spirit, her sense of humour. Uh, Gabriel, the youngest, has her looks, except that one's a boy and one is a girl. Um, so you find ways and means to live again and you never forget or you never, I mean, there's not a, an hour goes by that I don't think or talk about Karen somehow. Um, but you learn to live around the pain or around the loss. And um, I know there are a lot of people in the country at the moment dealing with loss. And all I can say is that it does take a bit of time. But this woman also said there will be days when you want to sit in a darkened room and weep and look at photographs of Karen. But she said, if you weep until the second you die, you will never bring her back and you'll never change things. And although it's harsh when you get it, it's true. And so she said, go off and do something positive. And so I do go off and do something for my foundation. Well, it's fantastic. And I was really privileged to know Karen as a friend, uh, as, apart from you, Gloria. And uh, she was a wonderful, wonderful girl. The time we had in Australia was br brilliant. We laughed and <laughs> laughed and laughed and laughed. And it was just wonderful. And, you know, it, I still... I, it, it's in my office, this painting, and it's right by the side of me here now. And I look at it every single day and I just love it. It's so simple. It's so beautiful. And the thing I like about it most, it has no face or has a face, but no, no eyes or nose or lips or anything. But you know it's Karen because I knew it was a self-portrait because she used to scrunch her hair up the top with just a pencil through it. And also, it's very significant because she has her hand over the breast that uh, first got cancer. And so yes. it's very significant because, A, it was a self-portrait, and B, she was covering the breast that was affected, first of all. But I want to show you something else now, and I've never shown it to anybody else, uh, because when Karen was in the Lister Hospital in London, and she had her mastectomy, so she had one breast removed, while she was in there for about a week to 10 days, and I used to drop in every day after the radio show to see her. And while she was in hospital, she made this mask, a mosaic mask. Fantastic. And one, one Christmas, she gave it to me as a present. And I treasure it so much um, because she spent hours and hours with all the mosaic pieces, you know, the lips, the rouge, the eyelashes, you know, etc., etc. So I absolutely adore it. And I really treasure it. And um, see, the, the significance of it is that in all our lives, and particularly when Karen was fighting her cancer, we all wear a mask at times. You know, you've had heart problems and, and issues in recent years. You have to put the mask on sometimes because people don't want to hear you moaning all the time. They want to see the cheerful biggins or they, they want, I mean, in my case, I don't want to go on TV except saying, and somehow or other, when Karen was suffering from cancer for seven years, I did daily something, television, radio, whatever. But you, I do think that Dr. Theatre, Dr. Television kicks in and you come on, you go, good afternoon, everybody. You know, that, that lightness kicks in because you have to. Yeah. And so the mask goes on and off. So it was very, it's very symbolic 
of everything that both she had to do and I had to do, and I still do to this day sometimes. The wonderful thing is that, Gloria, you've been left with two wonderful grandchildren. Well, you see, Charlie and Gabriel, uh, whom Karen gave birth to, and I saw them being born. Now, I didn't see my own children being born because I was up the other end, wasn't I? (laughs) But Karen was brilliant. You know, she said to me, I never would have asked. I wouldn't have had the nerve to ask. But she said to me, would you like to be with me when Charlie's born? And of course, I wanted to be there. And then with Gabriel, unfortunately, her father had died literally just a week before that. So she really desperately wanted me to be there. She flew back from Northern Ireland. She shouldn't have even flown to Northern Ireland when when Don died. Um, But she flew back to London. She said, will you come with me and be at the birth? So actually, Ross, her husband and myself, we cut Gabriel's cord. And the funny thing is, I say to the boys, do you know... I have known you, and there you go, since the second I was born. <laughs> and, of course, that's true. So I have other grandchildren, though. I mean, Stephen and I have ten between us, and he, he has two great-grandchildren. Of course, I'm not that great-grandmother yet. He's a great-grandfather, but not me. <laughs> and, um, and then my son, Paul, has two lovely boys, too, Jake and Bo. And they are a blessing. And I have to say that at my birthday recently, we only allowed a certain number of people, but... They came out to Seven Oaks and we just had a blast because they're so funny. And I feel absolutely brilliant and at my best when I'm around them because I love young people around anyway. And they're funny. They make me laugh, you know. So, um, yes, I am blessed in that sense. Well, they they get that humour from you, Gloria. (laughs) God, I hope so. They certainly got it from Karen. (laughs) (laughs) Gloria, you've had the most fantastic career. It's been wonderful speaking to you today. It really has. Because Thank you. even though we know each other really well, we never speak like this, and it's been wonderful. And when you think you started at seven, singing your heart out, hoping to have a record contract, moving into radio, television, and now at the great age of 81, and by the way, you don't look it, you <laughs> are still working. And you've you've signed another contract for Rip Off Britain, which is a wonderful show. Uh, and you and it's it, you've been in the industry so long and as a woman that is fantastic news isn't it well it is because um at one point i thought i'll not admit that i'm 80 and then i think well the sun newspaper always finds that out anyway (laughs) and what i what i am very proud of is the fact that as you say the longevity has been there now michael in particular my younger son he'll say mom you know why don't you just go and sit in france for months at a time when you're allowed to go to france of course but i say to him I don't want to do that. I don't want to sit somewhere, you know, and not do anything. I was brought up in Northern Ireland to work. Northern Ireland has a fantastic work ethic on all levels. And I want to work. And I love, I just love learning something every day. You know, with um, Rip Off Britain, it's a consumer program. And so every day I learn about another scam or I learn about oh something else, how to reduce your electricity bill or whatever it might be. And it's interesting to me because sometimes journalists will say, or we'll talk about ageism. Here we are, Angela Rippon, Julia Somerville and me, three women of a certain age. And if you gave Rip Off Britain uh, to 21-year-olds, you know, they wouldn't have the believability, the trustability, the gravitas, because we've all lived a bit. We've been around the block a bit. The public believe us when we tell them about uh, consumer affairs. And so I'm thrilled to bits and with um, that we've been commissioned to 2023. I mean, my husband will probably keel over when he hears I'm still going to be working, hopefully, at 83. And, and then with Loose Women, you know, Loose Women, the value of that is the, the different opinions coming from all ages, from 21-year-olds right through to my age. And Janice Reed Porter at 75 and somebody else at 50. Um, so the value of the programme 
it defies ageism. And so it's lovely when uh, journalists talk about age and I'd say, well, look at us. We're still doing it. And uh, nobody ever says we're too old for this particular programme. You know, it's, it's horses for courses. We couldn't be doing rock, could we? <laughs> you know, nobody would say, we'll give you a rock programme to do. But hey, but you're the same. You've got to love it and you've got to feed off it. You've got to really want to do it because there's no fun standing out filming in the pouring rain. It certainly isn't. You need the energy. You do. And I've got one more thing to say to you before we part, because it's been wonderful today speaking to you, is I want you to promise me you'll never retire to France. I'm never retiring to France, but you can come and visit if you want. Perfect. The way you, the way you did in Australia. <laughs> no, the only, can, I te- can I tell you, though, Chris, any time we talk on the phone... You're always off on some high-flying boat somewhere with a, a sir or a lord or a lady or whoever, whoever. So I don't think you'll ever be in need of a holiday from me. But if you do want to visit in France, you're always welcome. As they said in that rubbish Irish song, come in and close the half door. <laughs> Thank you, Gloria. Hang on. Yeah, two flights to the south of France, please. Thank you. <laughs> Bye-bye, darling. Love you. Bye-bye. Love you too, Christopher. Thank you very much. You're a great interviewer and lovely to talk to. Uh, Many thanks. Thank you. Well, I so enjoyed that. I mean, Gloria's been a friend of mine for so many years, but it's good to get down to the nitty-gritty and find out about them even more. If you want to hear more conversations just like this, make sure you follow Show & Tell with Christopher Biggins on the podcast provider of your choice. And if you'd be so kind as to tell your friends about this podcast, I'd be ever so grateful. You can also follow us on social media. We're at Biggins Podcast. Goodbye. <laughs>